You're listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Hundelara, Cultural Manager at Asia House. Like every week, Asia House and the Barca Trust, with the support of the Altajur Trust and the Rohan Trust for Culture, bring you this series. Today, I have the privilege to have here with me Ulrike Elhamis. Ulrike is the director of the collections and public programs at the Arahan Museum in Toronto. She's a well-known figure in the field of Islamic art history and has served as co-director at the Sharjah Museum of Islamic Civilization as well as senior strategic advisor to the Sharjah Museum's department in the United Arab Emirates. She began her career in Scotland where she worked as principal curator for South Asia and the Middle East at the National Museums of Scotland, and also was curator for the Muslim art and culture at Glasgow Museums. And we thought it would be extremely interesting and entertaining to talk about a topic that many people do not necessarily associate to Islam, but in a certain way pervades many aspects of its culture, and this is the moon. Ulrike curated last year a sounded exhibition at the Al-Khan Museum on this topic, entitled The Moon, A Voyage Through Time, meant to discover the wonder, knowledge and beauty the moon has inspired through the ages. So, Ulrike, it's a real honor to have you here. And I wanted to ask you first, why this exhibition? Why did you choose this topic? Well, thank you so much, Juan. And um, I have to really acknowledge my co-curator, Professor Christiane Gruber, with whom I worked on this exhibition. And the idea really came on the basis of the global preparations to acknowledge and celebrate the 50th anniversary of humanity's first landing on the moon on the 20th of July 1969. And what was fascinating to me was that, of course, the moon has always held fascination and wonder for humanity over millennia. But coming as an Islamic art historian from a particular perspective, I realized that no one had really ever explored the the very central and important role of the moon in the spirituality, the sciences and the arts of Muslim cultures across time and space. And therefore, Christiane and I then started to uh, talk about the possibility of of developing such an exhibition for the Arachan Museum we managed to bring something together that really marks the very first exhibition of its kind and very much used artifacts and works on paper, scientific instruments, and also contemporary art to really um, unpack some of the big themes around the moon um, that, of course, ultimately are not at all unique to Muslim cultures, but really interconnect them with uh, the world at large. Yes, indeed. And I think many of our listeners would be surprised of such links. Perhaps you could give us an introduction about the importance of the moon, particularly for the early Islamic societies. Well, of course, early Muslims, like people all over the world at the most basic level, uh, appreciated the moon very much because it gave relief from a very harsh daily environment, a hot, uh, arid environment. It uh, sweetly illuminates the night sky and, of course, also most crucially, it helps travelers to find their way in the, in the darkness. But then within particularly 
Islamic context and, and the early days of um, Islam and the revelation of, of the Holy Quran, the moon also takes on um, a very central role as one of God's key celestial creations. And in the Quran, actually, in Surah 21, verse 33, um, it is stated that God, who created the night and the day and the sun and the moon, all the heavenly bodies in an orbit are swimming. So the moon now becomes um, a central part of God's creation of the universe, creation of the heavens, and a natural and eternal interplayer with the sun. And of course, um, what is important is that it is stated in the Quran that all the celestial luminaries and sun and moon above all of them are created for the benefit of humanity. That means they are in service to them, to human beings, and not to be worshipped. That is a key um, difference of, of approach and vision to the attitudes of uh, ancient civilizations that came before the revelation of the Quran in the, in the 7th century. The Quran also talks about the moon as a timekeeper and as the one who determines the really calendar of the year and marking the start and end of important moments in, in the year, including, of course, the uh, start and end of the fasting month of Ramadan and the annual pilgrimage or Hajj season. Finally, the moon is also seen as a beckoner of the end of time and the apocalypse. And there is one surah, one chapter in the Quran, Surah 54, Al-Khamar, the moon, which actually starts with the hour is near, the moon is split. As the splitting of the moon is seen as a sign that um, the end of time is approaching. And through this association with uh, the apocalypse, it also later became associated with the powers of the Prophet Muhammad, who of course was the recipient of the revelations of the Quran through the intermediary of the Archangel Gabriel. And the splitting of the moon becomes associated with the Prophet's proof of his prophet hood or his his status as a prophet because when on one occasion he is challenged by doubters he points the finger at the moon and causes it to split to prove that he has power over nature as invested uh, by god so religiously the moon plays an important role practically uh, in the way people divided their life through the year it played an important role but it was also seen as a sign that god had invested uh, or installed in in the heavens for people to behold to study and to learn from and to seek messages from uh, the divine 
unity. And as a result, later uh, on, Muslim cultures often turn to the moon to try to understand how earthly affairs might unfold and how um, it might give indications of um, future events, indications of um, impending disaster or crisis. Um, and it also uh, was seen as a marker of uh, natural phenomena that in turn could have an impact also on the human condition and human health, in fact. That, of course, then led um, uh, scholars and scientists to really, really um, invest much effort into studying the moon and its behavior across the heavens um, and across the year as it moved around and also, of course, interacted with the stars in the sky. So we're talking about science. How did scientists engage with the moon to further our knowledge? Of course, I mean, the early Muslims uh, built on a combination of different previous perspectives on the moon. And of course, these perspectives came really from, again, three quarters. There was all the ancient knowledge, all the knowledge from ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian civilizations, Greco-Roman, Persian, Indian knowledge. And that was added to very locally in the Arabian Peninsula with the knowledge of the nomads and the Arab Bedouins who of course had to um, uh, crisscross the uh, very arid and difficult lands of the Ara Arabian Peninsula by looking at the stars and, and the heavens in navigating uh, their way. And then the third element, as I said, was also the instructions and the guidance given in in the Quran. So these kind of um, pre-existing sources of knowledge were then built on. And there were, of course, many different reasons for that. First of all, yes, there was the, um, the faith aspect and the desire to know God's universe better and uh, arrange life according to God's order and, and guidance. But there were also practical reasons because as the Muslim empire expanded, navigation became more crucial and um, the um, practical arrangement of the seasons, which of course are also then uh, associated with with harvest, with trade, with conveying commodities in line with the seasons, all that uh, became, of course, increasingly important and uh, affected the need to scientifically engage with, uh, with the moon. The measuring of time for, uh, again, calendar 
creation and of course also for the determination of important uh, religious and then later also of course stately events depended on a clear understanding of of the celestial movements and um, and um, rulers for example they saw themselves as moons in a sense reflecting the divine light but for their um, officials and for their subjects they were the sun and their officials for example were the the moons who reflected their light so the moon was ever present in people's um, perception of a perfect god-given and god-invested uh, life and in that respect, the moon was also seen as, as a protector, if you like. And that is where its talismanic properties come in. And um, we have, the, and of course, also it, um, it is used sometimes in stories that teach people about how to be wise and thoughtful in their actions. And I remember one story uh, in, encapsulated in the Anvara Suheili, which uh, concerns a, a little duck that sees a reflection of the crescent moon in the water. And the duck keeps pecking at the little crescent because obviously it's shiny and shimmery. Uh, and of course, it keeps pecking and pecking, but it can never catch anything. So, and getting more and more hungry in the process. And then, of course, it comes to a point where it decides, well, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to pick at anything that's shiny anymore because it's just illusionary. So next time, a little silvery fish uh, swims by and the duck lets it go because it thinks it has learned not to trust these deceptive, shiny um, illusions in the water with the result, of course, that it loses an opportunity and gets even more hungry. And the moral of that story is in that particular case that even if you have a bad experience a couple of times, always do reflect and do not take it as a universal given moving forward from there. That is a wonderful story and I'm sure that our audience will love it too. Because we're discussing symbology, there is an interesting phenomenon I wanted to ask you about. It is often assumed that the cross symbolizes Christendom, the Star of David, Judaism. But it is often said that Islam has no symbol. Perhaps in recent years, product of marketing maybe, the crescent has been associated to Islam. Why is this association? Yes, today the crescent is popularly understood as a symbol of Islam, but its history is enormously complex and goes back over thousands of years. So when you look at the Quran itself, there is only one reference really to the Hilal or rather Ahilla. And it occurs in, um, in the second chapter in verse 189. And there it says, they ask you, O Muhammad, about the new moons, Ahilla. Say they are measurements of time for the people and for Hajj. So what that means is that the um, new moon, the Hilal, the, the first 
sighting of the new crescent is the sign by which people should arrange their time, i.e. organize their calendar. And of course, Muslims still follow, uh, in principle, a lunar calendar. And according to that, establish the important religious landmarks throughout the year, including the Hajj, the pilgrimage, but also other events and other seasons, like very importantly, the fasting month of Ramadan. But in the regions in which Islam came to flourish and expand, of course, ancient civilizations had been engaging with the moon and using the crescent moon as a symbol of, again, um, higher powers and manifestations for thousands of years. So. Um, the crescent was a symbol of moon deities in, in ancient Egypt, in ancient Mesopotamia, in Iran, and also, of course, around the ancient Mediterranean. And interestingly, there are stories that um, also liken the waxing and the waning of the moon, which, of course, always re uh, results in, in a crescent, to the the horns of a bull, which in turn was associated with moon deities that were also seen as kind of shepherds that herd their flocks of stars across the night sky. And this kind of pastoral power of, of moon deities was um, associated with the power of the kings on earth, the ancient royalty on earth, and their way of running things, being an earthly reflection of the timeless order and um, cycles of, of the heavens. And later on in uh, Byzantine and Sasanian contexts, we often find the crescent um, still associated with both religious iconography and also royal iconography. So there is traditionally a link in ancient civilizations between the heavenly spheres and their reflection through the royal rule on earth. So when Islam came along, and of course the, the actual dogma of the religion started fusing in many ways with the existing cultures um, and traditions that were inherent to specific regions and geographic areas of the Muslim world. These kind of ancient uh, references, of course, are not eliminated, but they kind of become, if you like, uh, Islamicized and become drawn into the convictions around the moon that I spoke about earlier. So interestingly, um, if we are looking at it as a specifically Islamic symbol, it seems to first uh, emerge in the 12th century when um, the cathedral of Ania in Armenia is converted into a mosque in the 1160s and uh, the cross on the dome of the cathedral is replaced by a crescent moon. So that is where we seem to find the first kind of direct link between Islam as a religion and the crescent moon motif. And then of course, um, 
this gets consolidated in particular under Ottoman rule, um, who of course, you know, then uh, came to rule over large expanses of the Islamic world between the um, 15th and particularly 16th century and the early, early 20th century. And what is fascinating is that um, there were um, thinkers at the time who saw a mystical connection between the letters for the word Hilal and the letters for the word of God, which are identical in Arabic and are also um, further identical in, in, the, in the word for tulip. So the crescent and the tulip now occur jointly on, on many uh, Ottoman artifacts. And there's a theory that it is because of the letters that they share. And over the centuries, you then find that these motifs get carried from the Ottoman heartlands and from the, the capital of Istanbul across the um, Near East, Middle East, across Ottoman lands, even into uh, Eastern Europe. And a further dimension that came into this obsession with, with the crescent moon was that, the, that certain descriptions of the Prophet Muhammad uh, also liken him to a moon, and a particular art form became developed in the 17th century by um, a prominent calligrapher at the time, Hafiz Osman, and that is the so-called Hilia. And the Hilia is basically a word portrait uh, based on an eyewitness report of the Prophet's experience by his um, cousin and son-in-law, Ali. And this um, eyewitness report, as it were, becomes arranged in a calligraphic tableau, if you like, which has a crescent-shaped uh, circle in the center and then is, for, is framed by four other roundels, often incorporating the names of the first four rightly guided caliphs. So the first sign of um, a state flag with the crescent and the star at that point uh, goes back to 1793 when um, a flag is designed for the Navy. And um, this flag, which at the time was still um, green rather than red, then becomes the prototype that later develops into the national flag. And of course, as a result in the 20th century, then actually gives the inspiration for a whole host of other flags designed by um, newly independent countries in the, in the Muslim world. So there are many pieces and objects featuring the moon in the Islamic world, as you mentioned. What is the aspect that you have found most fascinating in regards to the arts? It's fascinating how embedded it is in all the art forms across uh, cultures and across centuries. And of course, in a way, it's not surprising because if you come from what I just told you before and this complex 
web of uh, beliefs and convictions and preoccupations and scientific um, uh, fascinations, then it only makes sense that they also somehow find themselves manifested in, in, in artistic media. And of course, both, and that's very important to remember, in intangible arts and in the visual arts. Because often in, in the West, we tend to focus primarily on material arts and visual arts. But in the um, pre-modern Islamic world, intangible arts like literature and poetry, and of course, to some extent, also music, were extremely uh, uh, central as well, and sometimes even more central than some of the uh, physical manifestations that have survived to reflect these preoccupations and tastes to this day. So starting with that particular point, um, you find a lot of poetic, philosophical, spiritual, and um, rhetorical allegories reflected in, in the arts coming down from poetry and literature. And the, the most straightforward um, manifestation in material form, of course, is calligraphy. And we, for one, have a very extensive body of calligraphies in the collection um, that tend to be focused on mystical poetry and often allude uh, to the moon. And the moon as a metaphor for divine beauty, spiritual beauty, but also physical beauty. So we have references to the beauty and, and the spiritual beauty um, of, of the Prophet Muhammad as likened to a moon. And of course, also that moon, because it doesn't really create light of itself, but reflects the moon. In that case, um, signifies the Prophet Muhammad as reflecting the divine light that he was uh, honored with. You also have the moon as an image of really very physical beauty and the ideal and that respect, particularly in the Persianate world, came to be the moon face, ma ruh or ma rue. And um, we have some beautiful luster wares in our collection and they were also in the exhibition that show just such moon-faced personalities and it's interesting that they are not always clearly identifiable as female but they are these genetic uh, generic round faces with almond-shaped eyes and then crescentic eyebrows which again interestingly in poetry are often uh, likened to the crescent moon uh, as such. Beyond that, you also find um, references to the moon, particularly in, in relationship to its lunar mansions and the astrological star signs and planets, particularly on, on metalwork. And it's fascinating that we have a pro proliferation of such artworks between the 12th and the 13th century, particularly in uh, what is now Syria, Southeast Turkey, and uh, Northern Iraq. 
And fascinatingly, of course, that is the very region where over centuries and certainly in pre-Islamic times, you have um, a very diverse and disparate um, collection of different religious groups and heterogeneous religious practices, many of which go back to these old um, moon worship related uh, rituals, cults and sanctuaries that could be found centuries or even millennia ago. So again, nothing comes out of void and um, ancient traditions and cultures often survived and became Islamicized in particular Muslim cultures. And um, again, there is evidence that the rulers in that particular area were again compared to the moon as well. So we have uh, the ruler of Mosul who is called Badruddin Lutlu, who ruled just until the emergence of the Mughals at his gates, very literally. And Badruddin Lutlu means basically the moon of religion. And we have many artworks that were commissioned by him or in his realm that make references to the moon and the crescent moon. Ulrike, this has been a very comprehensive review of very deep topic. Um, before we finish, I wanted to make a note in Islamic art. The moon is female. This is an interesting feature considering the tradition of male moon gods in several parts of pre-Islamic Middle East. How did this occur and why is it important for us? Again, the sun, you have to see it in the relation uh, or in, in reference to the sun and moon dynamic, where the sun is really the, the harsh, determined, powerful, but also scary one in many ways, whereas the moon is the gentle, soothing, maternal one in many ways. And the fact that people knew that the moon had... Um, a monthly effect on water, uh, on the tides, but also on female cycles, um, the moon very much became associated with uh, female existence and female cycle. So there was a kind of uh, awareness along those lines. And um, it's often as I said, also reflected through the poetry and the um, uh, qualities that are addressed in the poetry with regard to the moon. Ulrike, it has been fantastic listening to your story about the research you did at the Alohan Museum and all these amazing aspects of the moon, which I think is a symbol we all need to know more about since it has defined so much the dogmas and folklore of the lands of the Islamic world. I really hope that once this lockdown stage we're going through is over, you can come to Asia House and join us for an event here. Juan, thank you so much. Oh my God, I would so love that. Absolutely. Yeah, anytime. Just give me a plane. I can come on. I'll be there. <laughs> I'm sure we'll make it happen. And thank you so much, all of you who listen to us every week. Don't forget to check our website and stay tuned for new content we will announce during summer. I hope you all stay well and safe. You were listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House.
For more information, please visit our website, asiahousearts.org.